Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. How can we come together to help each other create in different ways? And money is obviously like a big part of that. And I don't think that can be, that should be ignored. But I, I think that there's better ways to meet the needs of people in our communities that need that than trying to be like, my, my name is Jeremy my- Gage and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. everyone welcome to the draw your dice podcast my name is jeremy gage as you heard in the intro but as always it's not about me it is about who i have brought to you today and what a treat I, to bring it fun fact this is a redo i'll say it out loud i don't care my my file things got messed up so i'm happy to bring this wonderful designer osr brain hard-working individual I'd like to welcome the designer of Errant RPG to the show, Ava Islam. <sighs> None of those things you said about me are true. That's literally... What do you mean? <laughs> You're not uh, the designer of Errant <laughs> <laughs> That's like the... Well, I mean, that, you know, honestly, it is debatable whether or not I am oh. the designer of Errant. But that one's probably the most true of the, th- of the things you said. The previous three things leading up to it i would contend percentile truth that's the age we live in ava as as beginning of all these shows would you just give a brief introduction of who you are and how you present yourself to the internet for anyone who might know might not know who you are and is listening my name's ava i i think about uh dragon games and dice a lot i guess and i i did that for uh, so long that I ended up with like hundreds of pages of, of random rules, and I and and people paid paid me money to to publish those apparently, and now I and now I shit post on Twitter all day <laughs> at young dumb bitch y u n g d u m bitch. It's so interesting. Here, what's what's really fascinating about 
doing this for a second time is that the first time we did this, you're like, man, maybe I should change my Twitter handle. And this time it sounds like you're just embracing the bitch of it all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love the change in energy. See, I think I passed the Rubicon where there was like a, a job thing posted on Twitter and I applied for it and it was like, leave your Twitter handle in the application. And so I had to like type that out in like the application for like a job ass job. And I think it like, just like broke something in my brain. Now I'm like, nothing matters anymore. (laughs) This is what it is. Amazing. Additionally, Ava for the show, would you also sort of walk us through your journey of tabletop, like how you first started getting invested in the hobby, and then maybe what was the first instance that kind of forced you to design a game? Yeah, for sure. So I started playing D&D like back when I was 10, I guess, when a family friend of mine, because I was a kid, and I love fantasy books, and I really love dragons. I was, like, super into, like, dragons. So a family friend of mine gave me his old copy of, like, the Menser Red Book, like, the the Bee and Beck Me. And so, like, I used to play the solo introductory adventure in that. Over and over, I would reroll my stats until I got an 18 in strength. And I would occasionally play D&D with, like, him. He was, like, in his 30s, so it would just be, like, a bunch of, like, tech bros who all worked with computers and shit in their 30s and then just like a 10 year old kid there just excited to roll die dice and yeah and then I kind of like we moved away from those folks so I kind of like lost my connection to the hobby as like a 10 year old child who didn't really actually like know what was going on most of the time I like briefly tried to get back into it when I like remember asking my dad to take me to the store so that I could like buy some D&D books and I bought like what what was like the starter box at the time. It was like the 4E starter box, which I guess was like the current product at the time. I didn't like know there were editions of Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't know there were like <laughs> different parts because like I only knew these like random books from the 80s and like whatever I played with my weird adult friends, my weird age inappropriate friends. And <laughs> so then I remember like opening this box and there's like all these minis and this grid and shit. And I was like, what is going on? This what isn't looking at here. This isn't the same game. So I like packed that up. And then I moved from Australia to Canada. And in high school, a bunch of my friends and I, we had like an ongoing board game night thing. And then the 5e starter, they all wanted to play D&D. The 5e starter thing just came out. So this is like 2014, I think. So we played that. And I tried to DM 5e for a bit. And it was basically like as I was like trying to DM 5e, like playing it in different places, like ex- like I started playing on Roll20 and stuff. And then I started like Googling things. And then that led me to all of these like strange blogs talking about something called the OSR. And I was like, this sounds dope. Whatever these people are doing, that's what I want to be doing. And so like for for a long time, I tried to like, make 5e like an osr game and i failed pretty miserably at that and i came and then i had this moment where i was like why am i trying to make this game do something that it doesn't want to do instead of just like going off and playing these games that actually do what i'm trying to do and that was i think probably that was 2016 and the black hack had just come out which was like 
this like little minimalist OSR rule set that like everybody got like crazy into at that time, me included. And I essentially just started playing, running the black hack and adding house rules to it. And I added enough house rules that eventually I was like, oh, I think I've got like a game here, like its own thing. Like there were no surviving. It had been fully ship of Theseus. There were no surviving rules (laughs) from the black hack in it at all. (laughs) So I was like, oh, yeah, I think this is something else then. (laughs) I love that. I love that the the entity that is your working game now is a product of murder essentially when it comes to the past game just a well, little of od and d this is like it's just like a hack of a hack of a hack it's just like an infinite chain of like <laughs> just just i don't even know if it's murder so much as it is just like complete like d and reconstitution you just disassemble something and rebuild it and you add some other random shit you found on the street into the pile some full metal alchemist shit right now can you i mean i don't know is D even alive anymore i don't think so like it's a corpse like it's fully like a like a walking like animated like zombie thing can you like kill what isn't alive i don't think so <laughs> How do you destroy that which has no life? Kill. I guess you can destroy something. Shambling horror of a game. You can turn undead. Or or you can be undead. I want to do the... For everyone at home, I want to be a zombie. When you were sort of adjusting D&D 5e, what did... What did you find was causing you the most friction to start change, like start adding some house rule things. Was it just like, o- like OSR forum influences or was there something personal in which you were operating those styles of games that you're like, well, this isn't doing the thing that like I need it to do. And was that a result of like just you or was it a result of the table you were playing with at the time as well? I think it was. I can remember. No, yeah, it's it's all. I think I think it was definitely a lot of like the influences of like the stuff that I was reading, of like seeing essentially like what this game could be, like what Mm -hmm. the game could be if there are like decisions to things and like consequences and stuff like that. Like just just. When I was when I was reading those OSR blogs for the first time, I was looking at stuff because like everyone pitches D and D as like oh like D and D is just like collaborative storytelling, which is like fun and all, but I feel like you like run into like these bits of friction where there's like okay you want to tell a story and then you've got like all of this like all of this math what's that doing there <laughs> and 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 you have like all of these like. You know, like, all of the, like, Reddit D&D horror stories of, like, players with, like, random backstories and whatever just acting like complete edgelords and whatever or, like, not, you know, just, like, all of the problems that come when you try to use, like, five half-paying-attention people at a table as, like, the vehicle for some kind of narrative authorship, mostly in the purvey of, like, one person, it, it just kind of falls apart. And then I was looking at these OSR blogs, basically, and I was like, oh, like, goddamn, like, D&D's, like, 
a game, like a game that you like you play, like it's like a video game or a board game. It has like rules and it has like outcomes and it has like specific feelings that are created as a result of like playing the game. And that was also like really liberating too, because like just like running a game is like way easier. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say like way more fun than the like onus that gets placed on a lot of DMS as being like, be our little stage monkey for tonight, perform Mm -hmm. for four hours. Tell us, tell us a magnificent little story that with, with voices and props and that caters to every individual player's like whims and desires and needs. I mean, more power to the people that can pull those off, but that ain't, that ain't for me, chief. Yeah, I don't, I'm not looking for the 150 uh, session campaign that probably is necessary to accomplish that <laughs> experience. Yeah, it's really the biggest thing that I always point to when, when that sort of example is given when there's a conflict between like the game and then the storytelling is Firebolt, the cantrip Firebolt that everyone's familiar with. It says you deal fire damage to a target but can I start a bonfire with that firebolt? Can I light a torch with that? I can obviously wield the power of fire magic. So where's all my utility at? You know what I mean? Like I know there's fucking create a goddamn bonfire and there's goddamn dancing lights or whatever, but like, Fire is fire. I don't care which way you swing it. Like you just give it a different verb command and it does what it needs to do. So like, I find it interesting that when someone takes firebolt, but they don't take any of those other utility fire spells and says, yeah, I could set up a fire for the night in this high fantasy magic, high magic world. And I'll just start a campfire. Cool. Do you have like a tinderbox? No, but I have firebolt. Well, that's not what firebolt does. Huh? Interesting. (laughs) Fascinating. You know, I think it's, uh, I agree. What I'm looking for is that I agree. When you, when you look at it as like a game with specific abilities that are on your hot bar, I think it's a little bit more, a little bit more of a release to engage with those mechanisms as intended rather than trying to like shoehorn them in to give you a particular experience. Which is funny though, because I'm all for using Firebolt to, to start a fire though like that's what i mean i like i think and i feel like 5e is like a little bit better than that than like fourth edition was like kind of nuts for that because you had all of these things which were like you had a name for the ability that would imply that you did something like like you know that you have like some kind of like ability that the fighter has to like pull their enemy to them and it's like mm-hmm. do they use a chain do they use a rope or what what how does it happen and and those things just like magically kind of like turn off after combat you can't you can't do them anymore yeah. but yeah i just i i mean that it's like it, more in the sense of like in 5e it's like what what reason do you have to start a campfire like who cares mm. if there's a campfire you know because there's there's like what's like what's the goal like you know like if the goal is to just like be like whatever we're gonna like tell some stories we're gonna like fight some monsters that's the only part of the game that like really mechanically matters and the rest of the time in between is just like us doing funny voices and occasionally rolling a d20 but like why bother to start a campfire if you don't have like mechanics around like sleeping or or Mm. or cold weather or like actually having to eat stuff to survive which 
you know, implies like, like in 5e, there's like a fail state and a win state basically in combat only. Like you, that's like the part where usually you like die or, or live. And then the, and then the rest of the game is just kind of like mostly abstract stuff. There isn't really anything to it. So like use firebolt for whatever outside of combat it 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 literally doesn't matter because it only matters when it's doing 1d10 damage to to the orc (laughs) because that's the only time you can win or fail but like if you have these mechanics if you view the game as like a whole of like we have a specific goal which in like osr games is like get the treasure survive to it and it involves all these different steps of like traveling through the wilderness and exploring the dungeon and whatever suddenly all of those things become important outside of combat and then the game holistically the the win states and the fail states and all that holistically apply to like the entire the entire experience Mm -hmm. you don't Mm -hmm. have this weird cleaving of like this is the game part this is the story part yeah this is the part you hang out until you it's like it's almost like it's the the in between is the pause between the next time you engage with the game, right? Like right. the game like, happens during combat, and then you stop playing the game to do something that breaks the pacing of that combat, and then you engage in combat again, right? Like that's the pattern, sort of. Well, it's basically because, right? Like, com- like combat is the only part where there are mechanics that you actually have to make decisions in, mm-hmm. right? Like there are mechanics for other parts of the game. But, like, there's not really much decision-making involved. It's, like, you're doing stuff, and then your DM says, roll this check. And you roll that check, and you either, like, pass or you fail. There's not, like, a decision to be made there. And, I I mean, like, this also, this is, like, complete straw manning, of course. Like, there are other, like, decisions that happen in the course of, like, a game outside of combat that, you Mm -hmm. know. But, like, there's no systematic support for those decisions happening there. That's really on the onus of, like, the GM to provide those. Mm -hmm. And there's not much support for them to do so. Unless you buy 25 different things inside of DM's Guild that lets you hobble rule. (laughs) But that's a whole other conversation. In fact, that's a conversation that leads us into all those house rules becoming something grander. Why don't you give us a brief introduction of the errant RPG? Oh man, like where to begin? I guess it was mostly, it's it's a game that, like errant I guess is like my, is like the thing that happened that like was created. It's like the byproduct of my attempt to understand how to run like all, like how to run like dungeon crawls and hex crawls and all of these like, supposedly i i feel like kind of just like lost lost techniques like lost practices like these things that like you see in your game like you open up your 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 game book or whatever your even your 5e books your curse of strahd or whatever and you see a hex map and you're like oh cool like a hex map like why is this important how, how does it work what do i what do i do with this and it's the same with the dungeon you open up like a dungeon map and there's a bunch of rooms and there's a bunch of like corridors and it tells you like all of the distances between all of the rooms and you're like what am i supposed to do with this <laughs> what how, am i looking at <laughs> how does this how does this work you know because everyone like and i mean because like through like kind of cultural osmosis right everyone like knows what a dungeon crawl is but i, rem- I don't know i remember playing so many games on roll 20 where the DM would take us to, like, a battle map. It's the map of the dungeon. It's a really nicely drawn, like, the everything's colored in. It's fully aligned to the grid. It's super nice. And we just drag our tokens onto it. And the DM, like, just describes the dungeon. And I just 
take my mouse and I click and I, I just start dragging my token across the map. And everybody's just kind of like moving their token across the map until eventually the DM's like, okay, you get into this room and this happens and there's maybe a fight or something and it's cool and then it's done. And then I take my thing, I start dragging my token across the map <laughs> to like the next part of the room, just dead silence while we're just dragging a little picture over top of a bigger picture on the internet all together <laughs> on a voice call. And I'm like, there's got to be more to it than this, right? There's got to be like something to like actually like exploring a dungeon that mm-hmm. makes it a dungeon. And so Aaron is really based around this idea of like, of like looking at these old, of, of, of older OSR games and, and trying to, see, and, 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 and blog posts and stuff and trying to see how they tick and like, how actually are you are you meant to run these things and just me like throwing rules at the wall and refining them until i was like oh i i know how to run these now with with the support of 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 these things that i've you know found and developed to the point that i kind of don't need them anymore it's 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 one of those like little things where like I barely run errant like rules is written anymore. It was one of those things where like for a long time I was like developing the system and I would be like, I'm not doing this right. Let me look at what I've written down. Let me change this because it isn't right until I eventually was like, oh, I I know what I'm doing now. I I don't need to worry about what I wrote down because I've like internalized it and I can like play with the formula. Mm-hmm. This isn't actually saying anything about the game, though. I don't know how to <laughs> fucking describe this game. It's 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 like it's a, it's a dragon game. It's a Dungeons and Dragons. The main innovation is that, like, you know how in combat you have a turn where you like make a decision and do a thing. There's just turns for every other part of the game too. Like, <laughs> there's a turn in the dungeon where you can like do one thing. Like, this is not new. This is in like the literally the oldest editions of of Dungeons and Dragons, but like kind of like the difference here is this difference in perspective where like in, in the, in the, in the older games, it's almost like a turn is like a ruler that you like place on top of a thing. You don't measure things in turns. It's more like, you know, your character has like, they can move like 120 feet in one turn in 10 minutes. And you just take the lowest movement thing of like one person. And so your, your characters like describe what they're, doing in 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 sort of older play like they're like we're going down this hallway and the dm would just like kind of like note until they hit you know 120 feet and then it'd be like that's the end of one turn we're gonna do another turn and a thing that a lot of newer old school players now are kind of the sort of modernized take is to view the turn not as like a ruler but as like a container like it's Mm -hmm. not like it's not like you it's not like you measure things in turns it's that you do things in turn so instead of like you move a definite distance it's like you move from one place to the next the sort of details it becomes a little bit more abstract and it becomes more about like the decision itself and it, it's it's the same sort of thing for hex crawls like before if you look at OD&D, it gives all of its movement rates in miles right it says you can move like 24 miles in a day or whatever. And then you have a hex map, which is divided into six mile hexes, which essentially just kind of functions as like a ruler to help you Mm -hmm. like measure how far someone gets in a day so that you can be like, oh, at 8 p.m., they've traveled 18 miles. So they're like at this point between this hex and this hex, whereas in Errant and in a lot of other games, it's kind of like movement rate is given in hexes, not in miles. It's like you move one hex 
in a turn. So it kind of abstracts things into like the game level rather than like a game level plus like, I don't know, like a reality level as a measure. And it, and it just does, it just does that throughout the whole game. There's, there's exploration turns in the dungeon, travel turns in the wilderness, downtime turns in civilization and initiative turns in combat because like, Turns are the part of the game where you actually play it. Like in 5e, when you're in a turn in combat, you're actually playing the game because you're making decisions. So why not make decisions the whole time? (laughs) (laughs) Why not do the game the whole time? Basically. Yeah, I think that might be... For my personal taste, I also think I'm very much a person who is in the camp of kind of making sure everyone does something in a round. Cause I, I think I find some struggles in games like PBTA or blades in the dark that don't really have like a turn or like an order or like something like that. And so I'm another layer of GMing is keeping track of who's doing too much. Who's doing too little. Am I supposed to engage with the person who's doing too little? Am I supposed to pull the reins on the person who's doing too much when it comes to like more narrative style play so I find it really interesting that there are procedures for also that in-between time that kind of honestly takes a little bit of a, a, a cognitive bit from the GM as well. I don't do I don't do anything when I'm GMing. <laughs> when I'm running Aaron, I don't fucking do shit. It's like the easiest thing. It's it's a game that like plays itself. I'm like basically the equivalent of like, you know, in Fallout when you like click an enemy to attack and then there's a little text box that, that comes up that's like you rolled night you rolled a 19, you dealt four damage. Like that's just me. That's all I do when I run <laughs> games anymore. I'm a whole ass text box. It's true cuz like okay, like I guess the other thing, the other thing that makes the t- the turns work, the other thing in conjunction with the turns, the other sort of systematic element of it is what i call the event dice it's usually known as in in osr circles as things like the overloaded encounter dice or the hazard dice it was sort of pioneered by brendan s of necropraxis.com and so what it what it does is basically like in your traditional dragon games each you know you have like i was saying you have a turn in the dungeon which is like 10 minutes and you have all of these little things that are like okay like Every turn, you roll a d6. On a one, it's you run into a wandering monster, right? And every six turns, your torch goes out. Um, every 24 turns, a lantern goes out. And every sixth turn, you also have to take a rest. So there's all of these kind of like little bookkeeping things that you have to do. What the overloaded encounter die does is it basically takes that dice that you roll at the start of every turn that tells you if you have an encounter or not, and it puts all of the other bookkeeping stuff, it shoves it inside of it. So it's something like, if you roll a one, there's like an encounter. And if you roll like a two, you have to rest. And if you roll like a three, your torch mm-hmm. is burned down. And if you roll like a four, just something something related to the area happens. If you roll a five, you get the you get a sign of the next encounter that you have. And if you get a six, there's nothing. You don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And what this basically does is it is it is it creates like a a really easy like sort of like almost like a almost like a boolean flow to the game of just kind of like logic of logic gates and like a procedural flow of like i ask the players what they're doing they tell me what they're doing i resolve what i resolve the results of what they did i start a new turn i roll the dice i resolve what happens on the dice 
the players tell me what they're doing and it just kind of and you don't really need to worry about anything you don't need to worry about like pacing because like the game takes care of that itself with with this sort of thing you don't really need to worry about like spotlighting characters or making sure i mean there's obviously still some of that but i feel Mm -hmm. like it's it it definitely is uh, the most stress-free jamming that i've ever had to to use (laughs) to use this sort of system i think there's also there's also something really interesting there too when the events die sort of takes over the what do you have to do at this space location in this turn or whatever that is sort of like predetermined results in a way. I think one of the, one of the falsities, falsities, fallacies. I don't know what the right word is, but there's this thing where like, you know, you're engaged in combat in D and D five E and you go, I'm going to attack the goblin. Right. And then, then you roll your D 20 and then you miss. You're like, Oh, I guess I'm not attacking the goblin this turn like there's this there's this dissonance right whereas if you have this role that sort of happens and said hey here's the next thing you have to role play towards or like that you have to fictionally think about moving forward like we are resting here that is not an option or or uh what have you and it's like okay let's give a reason why we're tired or something like that you know i think that just I think it help, helps bridge a gap that I think D&D doesn't quite have when it comes to role-playing for new players and that, like, you have to explain the thing that you're doing and just giving you sort of a prompt. It's almost like a prompt in a way, I guess, as I see it. Yeah, well, it's... it's Because it's not exactly, like, telling you fully, like, what's happening. Like, it doesn't create a scenario, a whole plot. Right. Like, use it with a dungeon. I, I guess I skipped a step in explaining what I do when I DM, which is like, usually it's like players are in a dungeon, they enter a room, you know, like I described the room, mm-hmm. I roll the dice, stuff happens, it's like risk versus reward. So it's like, in the thing that I was describing before, when I was just dragging my token like across across the room, also this this can this can be on the record. <laughs> cool. <laughs> on the mic. You know, there's like no consequences to what you're doing in the dungeon. Like, why are you in a in a dungeon at all? Right. Like if mm-hmm. you don't have to think about things like like light or or or, you know, food or 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 getting tired and exhaustion in the dungeon. Mm-hmm. So what the event dice there is for is not for like success or failure. Like Errant has its own success or failure mechanic, which also tends to be quite binary. I think that's like an OK thing. It, it, it like fail forward doesn't need to be in every game. It's oh. they suit different play styles. What the event dice is there for is to create like risk and to create consequences to your actions because you can't just sit there and like do everything because every time you do something, there's a chance you might run into something that kills you. There's a chance that your torch burns down. There's a chance that you need to rest and eat some food or something, Mm -hmm. which means that your resources are slowly depleting. It just basically is like a tool that is there to ensure that consequences have actions, basically that like every decision that you make is met like with resistance so that you can't essentially make all the decisions given enough time. You are mm-hmm. like limited in what you have to do, which makes the decisions that you make meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In our previous talk, you said that you had mentioned that Aaron's is sort of like a, uh, more of a, 
you might have to correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, more of a procedures heavy style game rather than yeah. like a mechanics rolling or at, or like dice sort of game. There's simple dice rolls, but it has mm-hmm. a lot of affordances built around it. And is this something that has come from like those OSR frameworks or are there other inspirations for those things outside of OSR that have uh, contributed to those designs? Definitely, like most, like almost all my primary inspiration is OSR stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of Errant was just made by like looking at things in like BX or AD and D first edition and looking at it and thinking like, what purpose does this rule serve? Like, what gameplay state is it here to like try to create? Like encumbrance, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a thing that gets ignored because it it's annoying to like track the different arithmetic weights of everything you're carrying but it's like why is this here like this has like a purpose this has like a reason which is like in a game about like carrying treasure Mm -hmm. how much you can carry is important and the more you carry the slower you are which is also important in you know when when you're in a game that takes place in like tight corridors where you might get chased by things with like sharp teeth you know so it's like okay there's like a definite reason for this rule there's a definite reason for this for this ruler procedure or whatever you want to call it being there it creates a specific gameplay state so how can i like replicate that with what i feel like are are is in a way that's easier to run for me at least and hopefully for other people but i really did design things with like me as the primary audience in mind first and foremost like this is a game that i use to run my own game so if other people can use it or use parts of it that's that's fine but it's it's mostly designed for me but definitely i i i I have inspirations from other places like i i really like blades in the dark and so there's like a little bit of that in there in like Mm -hmm. the sort of position and impact mechanic where Mm -hmm. you sort of lay out what the stakes of a role are before before you actually do the role there's a couple of like I think I was looking at a couple of story games when I was designing the the deviant class because their whole kind of shtick is that they they break the regular rules of the game and kind of play with like the narrative and the systems of the game itself in the way that a lot of story games do. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I was looking at Rogue 2E by Kazumi Chen. That was one. And the treasure at the end of this dungeon is an escape from this dungeon and we will never escape from this dungeon, I think it's called, by Riverhouse Games. The treasure at the end of this dungeon is an escape from this dungeon and we will never escape from this dungeon. That's the, that's the name of the game. So yeah, there's like a few little bits and pieces of inspiration from elsewhere, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, primarily OSR stuff usually. And usually like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the second thing was going to be. I was going to, I was going to say something, but then I realized it wasn't true right before I said it. So I was like, <laughs> No, we're going to let that die in my brain. That's And that is how the human brain works, everyone. Yeah, I actually, I had the pleasure of playing Errant. What's great about this version versus the other version is I've actually, actually played, played Errant played the game now. This time. Yeah, I played the game this time. So I, I played the Deviant, and I loved sort of like this flashback mechanic sort of thing that was built into there, and, you know... Glad everyone liked Ace. If you remember that stream, you know, he'll be coming back once every once in a while. He's my multiverse character. I make him for every stream. But yeah, it was it was interesting in that 
I liked how just from a from a player character experience, sort of like a live, you know, how did you like the game person I'm being interviewed by? Not that you asked, but I liked how a lot of the stats kind of correlated on the character sheet to different bits and bobbles that are involved in the game. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but MV did the character sheet design for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great job by MV. And, but to speak to the deviant, I, I am sort of like, I like to mess with the narrative. I like to push the game a little bit or push the, push on the fiction to see like where the bubbles burst a little bit. And, and then I'll like rein it back and I'm not here to be a dickhead, but I like to push the boundaries for sure. But the Deviant is exactly that and really allows for me to really just spend those tokens, spend those, what are they called? I have it pulled up. Don't say it. I want to do it. Deviant. I use those jettons to make a wager. And I also love how the, the GM gets to do sort of a devil's bargain thing as well to sort of like, lets me know what happened. Like, I, it's like I'm trying to burst the bubble of the game and the GM's like, cool, go ahead, try to burst my bubble. You fuck it up, though. It's going to be all bad news bears. So it was a really great experience, and I and I really loved everything I, I got to do for the Deviant. It's been a little while since, I, since our first version, but I guess as far as, like, what a player is doing in the game, were you just trying to, like, nail the four classic like typical classes that like existed in AD and D and everything like that. The go ahead, you Sam, you get in here. What were they? <laughs> oh, AD and D had a bunch of classes, more than four. The the class I don't think there's actually ever been four classes in D and D. Really? I think OD and D had your fighting man, your magic user, your cleric, and dwarf elf and hobbit and they were called hobbits in the very first printing and then they got sued (laughs) (laughs) rest in peace so there's never been actually the classic four there's never been an edition with just four classes but the classic four are what everyone thinks of as your fighter your rogue your 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 wizard near cleric and and yeah i i did want it i don't think you need any other classes I don't think you, I don't think, I mean, there's, there's, there's like, there's like two arguments to that, I guess, is the one is that like, oh, like I want a class for each character concept. Like a fighter is like not the same thing as a barbarian or whatever, like in the Mm -hmm. fiction to which my answer is like, why not? (laughs) Like, but yeah, but like then like it, it, it becomes one of those things where like it sort of justifies itself. Like if you have a game with like really tight tactical mechanics or or a lot of like mechanical differentiation like sure you can have those things and then they can like play in very different ways but errant is like not that game and then it's the other thing is just that like what like how many things do you need for your game to function like what are like all of the things that you that that happen in your game and do all of the classes provided give players all the tools they need to handle those things and Mm -hmm. if yes then i don't think you need more things than that but yeah i mean i did try to like structure and that's why i call them archetypes too because i tried to structure them in such a way that i that was like these are like 
the four big rules. They're not like character concepts in the way that like a barbarian or a monk sort of implies like a very strict like it, it, it doesn't just imply like what your character plays like it implies a lot about like what do they look like and mm. what was their background like or whatever. And so archetype is meant to be much looser where it's like they're they're not a fighter they're the violent if your character does violence regardless of like how they do it or what they look like when they're doing it or whatever they they fit in that bucket because their job is is violence and there's like little choices within the class that like allow you to be like i'm going to personalize this and i'll get maybe get like a little mechanical like widget for it but yeah that's widget (laughs) yeah you know like a little like like a lot of things in errant aren't explicitly like you know, you get like a plus one for this or whatever, but it's like, if you're a rat person and you want to identify cheeses by smell and you're like, I'm going to be good at this because I'm a rat person. Like, sure. (laughs) Okay. I believe you. Why why would you lie to me? (laughs) We're we're all, we're already lying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't need you to find the law in the book that says that you're not lying to me, that a rat person is good at smelling different cheeses, you know, that's yeah. fine. What are we talking about again? <laughs> did I want to nail the feel of the four different classes? Yeah, I did. I wanted, I wanted them to all play differently. I want mm-hmm. like, they all have different subsystems and I wanted them to, to when you play a different class to feel like you're, doing a different thing like you're mm-hmm. playing the game in a different way mm-hmm. and making different decisions than if you had picked another class yeah that's it i guess <laughs> it makes me because i'm thinking about you know what is a class as i write some things in my own personal time and one of the things i've been really fascinated by is Like, I think, I think you said basically the two things that I'm thinking about is like, is a class a character concept or is it a tool set, right? Like, I think when you talk about this version of archetypes, it feels like a tool set or a teachings. And then that makes me think of like jobs from Final Fantasy. I don't know if you ever played Final Fantasy yeah. or any of the game, but I think about like how jobs and professions work and like, hey, there is a guild for paladins and they teach you these things, but a paladin can be... I, th- I think there is this line that D&D could have where, like, the base class is the tool set and, then like, the subclass is the character concept, right? Like, I think that's, as we're talking about this, that's what my brain thinks of and that, like... That's, <laughs> that's AD&D second edition. There you go. See, I haven't read it. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's like... I think there's just something in there that that when you have these games that the world's most popular role-playing game, the world's only role-playing game, the the big ampersand, you, we talked about this on the previous episode about like the original character culture and how a lot of those concepts are being brought into. And I still have that article, so I will link it in here for people to read, but in the show notes. So go ahead and check out that article. It's really good. But you know, it's a thing about bringing your character concept and layering it on top of what the game is trying to do. And I think sometimes you get kind of pigeon held. Well, maybe see, this is how my brain works. I talk about it, but then I like argue with myself internally. And I'm like, well, that's not necessarily true because then it can help people. Like if they've never 
played a role-playing game before, it can really help drive like what their character might be behaving as in the game or something like that. Anyways, summation, archetypes, nailing them. I think it's very cool that you've thought about how to allow people to sort of play whatever they want in a lot of ways and then give them basically it's almost like a deck of magic cards each magic deck is do it a deck of magic the gathering cards i should be specific because magic cards might be like just a trick deck a sleight of hand deck but you know a aggro red deck is going to play differently from an aggro black deck and uh, a black deck is going to play differently than a green deck so like I think taking in classes that do very different game things are basically a different game in of themselves is very, very cool and adds a lot of like replayability and in, and entices a person to like want to play something different as well. Like, ooh, I played the Deviant last time. This time I'm going to play the Violent because I just want to see how, how that game plays, if they're that curious, right? I think it's, yeah. a, I think it's a triumph. What were... In making a game like this, what were some of like the biggest challenges in design? Something you just really struggled with for like more than two days, because you know I consider you a genius, but that's just me. Um, like really dumb shit. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> most of the big stuff was pretty easy because I stole it from other people, hmm. so I didn't have to think about it. Like, but like really dumb, minute stuff, like movement mechanics mm-hmm. of like, of just like being like, what dice should I use for this? How, like, how, what, how does the number that they have here translate into how many spaces they can move and how many dice should I use? For, I, I, I broke, I broke down my long struggles with the movement <laughs> mechanics in a, in a blog post. But yeah, it, it, usually it's it's stuff like that. Like one time, I was I spent like an entire day trying to think of so like in Aaron, you have like three types of weapons: they're heavy, medium, and light. Mm-hmm. And basically, the only difference mechanically between them is that heavy weapons do plus one damage, and medium weapons do minus one damage. But like. I really didn't want there to be like any arithmetic in my game. So I spent like a full day just like agonizing over like how can I represent a damage increase like this, like that minute in a different way and just trying out so many different permutations of like different ways to represent it with dice or whatever before just being like none of this works. I'm just going to keep it plus and minus one. <laughs> stuff like that other stuff is just is is just like in the magic system you know there's no set spells you roll a bunch of different there's like a bunch of different grimoires there's like a hundred of them that are like these like creepy objects that like determine that like are prompts for what kinds of spells you make and just like coming up with like a hundred of those and like three miscasts for each of them was just like hard and a slog so just just stuff like that i guess yeah yeah, who is it? Adrian is their name? Yeah. Who played that class? The name of that class being? The Occult. Dang it, why? I haven't. Just let I'm, me get to I'm sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a prompt for me. No, it's yourself. your game. 
I I should remember it too. Yeah, Adrian really loved the magic system you ended up creating inside of that because it makes it feel so much more grounded and tangible because you make items matter. You like make the components of the spell matter. And I know that in some cases, people who play Spellcasters D&D 5e can, like they can choose to, but... Most of the time, materials are, like, hand-waved, right? Like, I just mm-hmm. cast Fireball. Cool. Did you have the bat guano you needed for that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas this, it's like the spell originates from the things that I'm creating, or the mm-hmm. miracles originate from the thing that I'm creating, which is very, very cool. And it's also, like, a fun, creative exercise for the occult player as well, which is really, really awesome. What, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum... What's like your favorite piece that you made for the game? Like something you're really proud of? I love, I love, I love the downtime mechanics mm-hmm. and the way that the downtime mechanics and like the downtime mechanics in combination with like the rules for XP, I just think make the game. So the rule, the rule for XP basically is that you only get, you get, you get experience in two ways. You get experience for money wasted so money that you spend on just like drinking a bunch of booze and partying and and doing drugs money that you that is essentially useless to you and you get experience for whenever something you bought like becomes unusable even temporarily so that doesn't matter if it's like your sword breaks or your cow is stolen or someone deposes you from your kingdom. Once you have like a thing that you've put money into that you can't use anymore for for any amount of time, you get experience for that. And I find that it creates this thing where so like I feel like in a normal dragon game, you know, you look at the you look at the prices and it's like a loaf of bread is one copper, you know, and a hundred coppers makes a gold. And your character, your goes into a dungeon for the first time and comes out with like 3000 gold pieces. And it's like, why would you ever do that again? You have, (laughs) you have so much money now, just live the rest of your life, you know? And then players want to do things, do things with that money. And they're like, I want to set up a bakery and it's like, cool. And they get so invested in that bakery and the game just threatens to become like bakery simulator 2021. And it's like, that's that's rad, but we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. You have to go into the dungeon and fight the dragons. That, that's what it's there for. And so I feel like these rules like help with that because it, it does this thing where like you go, you get your money, you have to waste it. And then there's a, there's another rule, which is the lifestyle rule, which is like instead of being like, oh, for a month, you know, it costs like a hundred gold pieces in rent and twenty gold pieces for food or whatever. It just is like whatever money you have left at the end of your downtime turns when you're about to go back onto an adventure is halved. Like no ifs, ands, or buts. Doesn't matter if it's a hundred gold or ten thousand gold. Whatever you've got left is halved, and I find that that creates you know that like that like very sort of classic feel that you get in these old source, swords and sorcery stories or like cowboy bebop or whatever, where your heroes are like always fucking broke. Doesn't matter what they did. They're broke. So they're, they're broke now. So they need to go and get more money. And then they're going to use that money to pay for the shit that they broke while they were adventuring. But it also does the second thing, which is that it like, 
they're like, I'm going to lose this money anyway. So I'm just going to spend it on stuff. I'm going to like buy a bunch of things, or maybe I'm going to like set up a bakery stall because my players want to make fucking bakery so much. I put rules in it for that. And then their bakery now becomes like a source of adventure because when you roll the event dice during a downtime turn, it might be like, Hey, someone is poisoning your flour and you cannot get you can't you can't make any more bread until you find out who poisoned your flour and so now you get xp for that you get xp for your bakery and now there's an adventure for you to do because you got to go find out who's poisoning your flour so you can get your bakery up and running again and get xp from it later and it ties it ties everything it like it does the thing where it like lets players do what they want to do which is like come up with random shit to do with their money and invest in the world and stuff but it creates at the same time like a loop that keeps the focus of the game like on adventuring it doesn't like devalue all of the stuff you do in downtime being like it doesn't matter like if you have a bakery that's going to give you like in-game bonuses for when you adventure like you're gonna have a bunch of fresh loaves of bread to bring with you on the stuff maybe that's gonna like give you a boost to your health or whatever but it just like makes sure it like it ensures that it like ties in that it complements the other part of the game mm-hmm. without like overtaking it. And I, I really like how elegant that system is and the way all of these different parts of the game like feed into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mic drop. It's, it's good. And, you know, I think that is something that in my earlier days of GMing, I, I kind of struggled. I ran, was it called dragon heist for D and D a while back and they get like a, it's built into it that they get a headquarters. Like they get an inn or an old tavern that they can just have. Let me tell you the adventure full stops at level two. And we just go into an HGTV channel <laughs> series of just renovating this place and making dollars. No one cares about the 500,000 gold that's hidden somewhere in the city. Sure. And you know, in my in one of my minds, I'm like, well, let's just turn that into a dungeon. Let's just open up the basement of this thing and just go in. But yeah, I love that you've taken the consideration to sort of connect everything in terms of the fiction or the procedures that are present in the game because it allows it to sort of feed into itself and can really like I mean I don't I don't know what the cap limit of play on a single campaign is for this game but it seems like it can go pretty indefinitely based on what what i'm looking at slash what i'm hearing here today would you agree would you disagree yeah i mean i think errant is built like i mean a big part of that like a big part of the reason why those why those downtime mechanics and stuff is in there is because if you look at like all of the old original editions it's in there right like in 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 od and d your ninth level ability as a fighter is not you get an extra attack. It's you get a castle and people and you get like retainers. You get like you get an army to go with that castle. So this whole part of of, of the game where, you know, you you like invest in the world and you change it and you like build stuff has always been there for the beginning. And it's been part it's tied to it's like wargaming roots, right? Like the idea that like you would advance a D&D character to like max level and then they would become like the general of your army for for your war games or whatever and and i think that like kind of reflects in the fact that like players want to do this kind of stuff even from the first level because you know opening a bakery is basically the same thing 
as opening a castle at just at different scales. And mm-hmm. so it, it was about trying to find a way to, to take that aspect of the game, the domain game and s- simple, make it more gameable and integrate it through like the entire structure of the game, not just something that you do at the end of it, but yeah, at the same time, Aaron is, is designed for campaign campaign play, like long-term play, like, like those old, like those old dragon games. And I think that's like where it really shines. Like it's fine for a one shot, but like, honestly, if I was going to run a one shot for my friends, I, I wouldn't pick Aaron. I'd pick like into the otter or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Aaron is a game that like, I think like really shines when you, when you play it for an extended length of time. And there are definitely people who are hungry for that style of play that will actually like feed and you know, what is the end of D and D, but level 20 or fizzle, right? Like one of those two things are going to happen and then it's over. Amazing. Aaron RPG, go get it, buy it, tell your friends about it, share it, give Ava money, give all the other collaborators money or just give Ava money. I don't know. (laughs) Just send it to a PayPal account. Yeah, so usually in this section, Ava, I ask, you know, what sort of trends are you seeing within your within the industry, in your own social circles, Discords, Twitters, Facebook groups, personal text messages, whatever? Or what are you seeing in the industry that's being maybe detractive that you want to caution people against, or maybe maybe give a, a new perspective to that angle? Excuse me. Or if there is a trend within yourself that you would like to give to a listener that they can just run away with and kind of tying that up with the tip section as well, because you have a really amazing blog that uh, I have found like the, my still my favorite one so far is the concept of someone turning into a dragon because of their horde. I think that's a really fascinating article, but yeah, if you have like a, like an article someone should read, or if you want to like get into one on here, I would love to, I would love to hear about it. Thinking of this time blog post, by Ian Usum, who's a big, big person in the mothership community, big organizer there. Mothership did super well. So many projects in Mothership and Zine Plus 3 made just a bucket load of money. And that really came down to the way that these folks were all collectively organizing and, and helping each other and stuff. And so, like, this is going to get political because I've been reading Marx. Let's go. Right before I came onto this. But the show's about perspectives, Ava. I think there's a trend in online RPG discourse that is kind of indicative of, <laughs> oh, how do I, like, there's, there's like literally no way for me to say this without sounding like pretentious as hell, but like kind of like a bourgeois mentality in which we're looking at all of the problems besieging us under late capitalism of like the starvation wages most of us live under and 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 the struggle to like find meaning and make things real and our response to that and and the response that I'm seeing in a lot of RPG spaces is this idea of like professionalization of like being like you know you know what you should do you should charge money for your work and you should like set your rates like higher 
and you should like pay all these people you work with. And and like these are all like good like I'm obviously not against like paying people you work with and and and, and charging for your stuff, but I feel like it is this like kind of like response of like of like of like <laughs> like of like neoliberal capital like inching its way into every part of our lives even to this like corner of of our hobby space and the response to that is just like cool like lean in like accept the market you know what i mean and and like let's set like professional standards let's treat each other like professionals i'm seeing folks that are being like you know they're they're putting out srds and they're saying like yeah in my srd i'm saying like you know if you're a first time designer or whatever like sort of like and you read this and you make stuff like charge for your work like you did labor that's important and it is important, but I think what it is reflective of is like a sort of failure of imagination of thinking of forms of community and organization that aren't dictated by the logics of the market. And I think I think about like this idea too that like if you say this, you're saying that like, oh, poor people don't deserve to like make games or or you know, you're saying that like we should starve because, you know, we shouldn't charge for our games. And that's like absolutely not <laughs> what I'm saying. I think like one of the things that I've realized doing over the summer where I haven't been working my day jobs a lot and I've been doing like some like contract RPG work is that it's like so much harder to do this stuff and to be creative about your hobby when you're relying on it as your soul or one of your main sources of income. And I think that like, I think that like this idea that we have to like confront each other as like these sort of like market professional artisans, producers and consumers of goods is like one that's kind of like hurt our community long-term, especially like people coming into it, people coming into the space and like making things of their own for the first time and they put it up on an itch page and they charge money for it and suddenly like nobody buys it or nobody reads it or nobody comments on it and you're kind of like iced out of productive feedback or discussion that could like help you long term and I think that just Ian talks about RPG communities and collective action. He points to like Dissident Whispers, which was like an entire volunteer project that came together in such a short amount of time and did such an incredible amount of like high quality work that I think like really speaks to power to the to the to the creative the creative potential of people in communities and and the ability to be motivated by things that aren't, you know, money, especially when you have people in there that are like supporting you tangibly where, where, you know, everyone's like, we all have these skills. How can we put them together? How can we come together to help each other create in different ways? And money is obviously like a big part of that. And I don't think that can be, that should be ignored, but I, I think that there's better ways to meet the needs of people in our communities that need that than trying to be like, buy my, buy my PDFs. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in a community like this and I have been for a while. And it's like the main reason Aaron got made is because all of the people in here are like, yeah, we're going to help you make your thing. And I help them make their things. And we have like a mutual aid fund that we just like all donate into. And when people need help and when people need money, 
you just get it from there. You don't have to worry about like being like, oh, pay me for this job or buy this thing from me. And I think that does like a lot more collective good, honestly. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not to say I think paying for games is bad or paying your contributors is bad or any of that stuff. But I just think that there is, I think that there needs to be an awareness of like the drive towards like, I don't know, like market logics and market solutions and to, to try to think of like alternatives around that alternatives based on like community and mutual aid and support and skill sharing. I think that is like a much healthier thing long-term. Yeah, I was, it's interesting that you bring this up a little for a little while. I've been thinking about doing a sort of, hmm, what would be the word that I use here? Firm or agency, I guess, where, I find a couple of my best gal pals in design and we, you know, I, I recently discovered that I like designing like lore and monsters and GM stuff. And I don't, I'm not good at like systems. I'm not good at like doing dice math or card math or anything like that. And so I was thinking about pairing up with different individuals who have different specific skill sets so that we can, each help to create or fully realize our our dream pieces of content. For instance, I helped Spencer Campbell with Nova. Spencer didn't really like, couldn't really wrap his head around like making up lore. Just it felt like a little bit of a slog to him. So it's like, hey, I'll help you with like lore and creatures and GM stuff. And he has a full ass system. Viditya Valetti is the same way. Loves making systems. Does not like writing content around those systems. And so I was thinking to myself, like, what if you know, if I could just get like one systems designer and myself and then like an artist or illustrator and like kind of bring that stuff together, would that be more powerful and kind of more resonant community wide than if I were to keep trying to just like make my own stuff solo all the time? Is I just want to, are we on the same page here in terms of like what, what we're discussing here today? Or am I, am I missing something? I'd love to eat my own foot. No, we're, we're definitely like, I, I just like, I'm thinking of like going, like, I think, I think the cooperation and stuff is like the fundamental aspect of it. But I, I also like want to think about it or, or bring it into a space that is serving as like, that's, 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 that's creating, it's, about creating spaces for people to like make things with like less pressure from the sort of like demands of like, Oh God, like I have to like, I have to like, fuck, how do I say this? Just like, just like less, less pressure from like the demands that like we quote unquote, like value, like everything we do that like, we can't just like do anything for like fun or joy like Mm. everything has to be for an objective and has to like add to our personal value we need to be like leveling ourselves up or or hustling or grinding or or making Mm. something to sell just 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 about creating spaces where people can because people want to make things and people Mm. like love to make things and if you look at the history like of like what the internet has done or like you know people have come together to create like amazing projects built around volunteer labor right like things like wikipedia or like crazy minecraft servers or whatever that i think like 
give that I think like show proof to the fact that like people, regardless of of who they are, like if they're like you know like, and a lot of these things are are not being done by fucking rich people. These are being done by like poor working class people who want to make stuff. And I think as the pressures of capitalism rise and everything becomes like a gig, it becomes harder and harder to do that kind of stuff on your own without having to feel like or resort to, oh, I can't do this for free. I have to like sell this or turn it Mm -hmm. into like a professional product or something like that. And I'm thinking about how we can come together to create spaces that take that pressure off of us a little bit of mm-hmm. we can make things together and we can do things as a community effort and it and we can support each other artistically financially whatever so that we can just like make things you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. and that we don't have to be like here is my brand here are my products and that is like how we consume and regard each other's creative output you know what i mean through like Mm -hmm. a storefront yeah i think that or my feelings are geared towards uh fully agreeing with you i i think that you're saying a lot of interesting i think a lot about like the the concept of like just just sort of giving like having this like sense of altruism essentially not trying to just i don't know make what's marketable right i think it's a person like oh shit, what is their name? They make maps. Dyson, Dyson logos. Oh, Dyson like just, logos. Yeah, yeah. Dyson logos just makes it like here. Just have my shit. I if you pay for it, cool, whatever. But like, just just take it, do it. Let's build. Let's help other people succeed in making their thing. If they can't like draw dungeons or draw landscapes, like don't let that stop you from creating what you're going to do. I'll help you do that. Is that sort of like on the lines of of what we're talking about here today? Yeah, fully. I just, I just think that like, I mean, for me, first and foremost, this is like a hobby space and like a hobby community. This is like something that we do because it's fun and Mm. we love it. Right. (laughs) And I, and I think we should try and I, and I think, I think we should try hard to keep the specter of mammon from getting its fingers on it as much as we can in a nutshell. (laughs) I love it. I think that's, I think that's a really great tip because I think there is this pressure of like, it's like this, all the entrepreneurship, like bro-y stuff. That's like, you know, you have to capitalize your dollars for the value of your time. And like, you have to wake up at four 30 every morning so that you can succeed in life the fucking and rise and grind. Yeah. Bad. The rise and grind, baby. Get Don't do spread. it. It's bad. It's going to poison everything you love. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think like, it's like <laughs> find a job that like can support you. That's almost impossible. That's almost impossible for a lot of people right now so instead let's try to support each other as best as we can and let's try to like make art and like let's not try to connect those two Mm -hmm. in some like weird unholy union right like we can just like we can just all like i don't know like it's just like one of those things where like if we pool our resources we can do a lot more good than if we try to like make it as like individuals i don't know Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I really like the the mutual aid thing you mentioned earlier in that, like, it'd be so interesting if there was, like, an industry pool of dollars or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and right? it's, like, at a large scale, that sort of thing falls apart. What you need are, like, close, tight-knit communities for that yeah. to work. But it's, like, go find that. Go go make that. Go find the people who are interested in doing what you're doing and, you know, hang out together and make stuff together and, and support each other. That's that's my tips and tricks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my pro gamer advice. <laughs> What's up, gamers? Fartbrain9000 here. Remember to like and subscribe and hit the notification bell so you can get top tips from Ava every Wednesday at 7 p.m. EST. Did I do it? Is that the YouTube? Am I on YouTube now? You you did it. You <laughs> nailed it. It's internalized. I'm poisoned. With that, <laughs> that we are going to come to the top of the show here. Ava, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on again. Would love to have you on a third time and a fourth time. Sorry for everyone who can't hear the first time. There's lots of good juice in there. It just got broken up by the internet. Ava, once again, would you just give a brief outro of who you are, where people can reach you, where they can support you in, in any manner if they so choose? For sure. I'm Ava. I... I, I make dragon games and you can you can find me on Twitter at young dumb bitch Y-U-N-G-D-U-M bitch. And from there you can basically find everything else I do. I have a pinned tweet there to pre-order errant if you want to do that. And also the link to the website where you can basically read almost all the rules for free because you should be able to do that. And and yeah, my blog is at is permanent cranial damage, permacrandam.blogspot.com. I'm sure that link will be somewhere. And and yeah, that's that's about it. Thanks for listening to me ramble. It wasn't ramble. It was a lecture. Loved it. Every second. Thank you everyone for hanging out with us today. I hope that you learned a lot because I certainly did. And we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Ava. Bye, people. Bye, people. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Ava and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Ava or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.